You're listening to Idea Collider, a show that explores the world of asymmetric learning. On this show, I will sit down with pharmaceutical experts and business leaders to discuss how to embrace uncertainty and the different learning style that follows. I'm your host, Mike Rear. Let's get into the show. I won't stand in the way of you listening to Tim Kite. This is a remarkable episode for so many reasons, but one of them is Tim's ability to distill things that you might have wondered for a long time into very simple, clear observations. He's a lifelong student of elite performance and the mindset and behavior patterns of elite performers. And one of his observations, as you'll see, is that those performers think and behave differently because they've adopted a system. And the question in his mind was which systems actually work. He's studied that, looked at it. Uh, he's then built actionable high impact systems for developing exceptional leaders. But one of his you know, essential observations is that leaders create the culture that drives the behavior that produces results. And that is the way around he has observed makes a difference. So I know that you'll enjoy this episode so much. Hello, Mike. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. And yourself? I'm doing well. And where are you in the world? Today, I'm in Bluffton, South Carolina. Okay. I, just, yeah. Which is just outside Hilton Head, right on the coast of Carolina, South Carolina. Lovely. I've got a friend who runs around Hilton Head, and she's told me all about a part of the world. She's a huge fan. I wanted to dive into your your sports background, to, to, mm-hmm. to some of your thinking, so to some of your coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as it applies to that. I don't now, think... Amazon, are, are, are you primarily serving the pharmaceutical market? So we're gonna, we're moving out, right? So the inspiration came from looking at how do people, you know, I'll, I'll give you the, so the central hypothesis I've always tried to explore is if you gave the same drug to two different companies, would they be equally successful? And no one thinks that they would, right? Everyone thinks the companies are clearly going to be, you know, asymmetric in terms of the outcomes. I said, well, okay, good. Why? And then mm-hmm. everyone gets bogged down in, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. well, surely that's the most interesting question we could be ask, asking ourselves. So, yeah. Um, so then we, you know, went into this idea of, well, actually learning is a superpower. And if it is one, that's not a farmer industry specific kind of skill, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why I'd be keen to dig into your ideas on culture and so forth as well, because I, I I think a lot of the audience that we're getting for Series 2 is not pharmaceutical, so they're, they're just interested in this idea of learning as a as a strength. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, something I've always operated from as I work with companies, but also with sports teams, and the majority of our work is with business. It's I think it's kind of a side thing that we do, and it's uh, or that I do, it's, I get invited all the time to provide training and coaching to, to collegiate and professional athletics around the world, by the way. But I, I rarely say yes for a number, number of reasons. One, they don't pay very well. And number, number two, I, I can only take X number of, I mean, it's, it's an interesting challenge. I love it though. But here's the interesting thing. Here's a great quote, a great truth. A great company will produce great products but a great product will not produce a great company. I like that. I like that. Because we, we, yeah, we have that challenge in our industry, right? Which is sometimes you see great products despite the organization, not because yes. of the organization. Yeah. Yes. And so the, 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 the originator of that notion was 
Jim Collins. I don't know if he phrased it quite that way, but he, he made this statement, and I 100% agree with him, that the greatest creation that the, a leadership team produces isn't the product. It's the organization that houses, manufactures, iterates, distributes, and serves the people who buy the product. And yeah. so what follows from that, in my mind, I extrapolate from that, okay, you got a great product. Have you built around that product the kind of organizational environment, culture, leadership, processes, et cetera, ways of thinking? And, and can you iterate? Can you create the next generation? Can you? And, mm -hmm. and that's a whole different organizational and leadership discipline than initial R&D and product creation. And, and, and of course, and we're doing some work here in support of uh, venture capital. And we're helping some, you know, fast growth VC firms who are, are, are portfolio firms. And they, they know that now. I mean, one of the things we're teaching them early on in their early stages is don't just focus on product creation. Build an organization around it that makes that product successful and the next generation of products successful. Yeah. So we can yeah. explore that if you want. But I think that's an important notion based on what you just said. No, I feel like we've already started rolling on the recording because that yeah. I want to dive into that a little bit more as well. Sure. I think I wrote a piece about how farmer spends his time trying to pick winners instead of to train winners. And, and what you touched on is exactly that, right? Which is, I think the, this idea that the products will launch themselves if they're just allowed to. Yeah. It's clearly never been true, whether it's a team, whether it's a, whether it's a company that invention doesn't become an innovation all by itself. So how do you, how do you think about, People thinking about teams and companies. I mean, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs famously said the the greatest invention of of all was the company, mm -hmm. the organization. Yep. Well, you know, that's if you think about you know what is a team, what is an organization, and there's a group of people who have come together, at least a successful. And I, I like the word elite or exceptional. And and if I use the word elite, I, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about elite talent. I'm not talking about elite as an innate attribute. I'm talking elite as a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I've learned about people, period, and organizations is that talent is a gift and you get it from genetics. Skill is a choice and you get it from training. Mm -hmm. And when you think about none of us had any say on what talent we did or didn't get at birth. Mm -hmm. you know, some got a lot, some got a little. But what I've seen, and I've done that, I've been in this business, gosh, over 35 years and I'm, I'm 70. So I, I've, I've seen a lot. And, yeah. and one of the things that, that I recognize is the truly exceptional, they've trained to become that. Yeah. That elite isn't about the talent you were born with. Elite is about the work you've done to build a skill to become uncommon. Mm -hmm. And what, what I really, my passion is whether it's a team, an athletic team, or it's a business unit within an enterprise or the whole enterprise itself. You can become an elite organization, but you better know what to focus on. You better know, you know what to do to make that happen. And I, and I believe there's five drivers of organizational greatness. I think there's five things that, and we, we call it the five driver system. And those five things are strategy, process, structure, culture, and people. And so those five drivers, you, you have to be you have to be focused on all five of those. Mm -hmm. Again, strategy, process, structure, culture, and people. And what I've noticed is at leadership teams, and this is just a natural phenomenon, no one CEO or no one C-suite leadership team is equally skillful at all five of those. Right. 
you know, that we have kind of like managerial comfort zones where I have things we like to do. And so if you happen to be a process person, you love Lean Six Sigma, you love, you know, process reengineering, you love the the details of operations. Well, how are you culturally? Hmm. I'll leave that to HR, right? Well, that's a mistake. Right. Or or you're in HR and you love people and relationships and empathy and emotional intelligence. And good. How are you at process discipline? I'll Mm -hmm. leave that to the engineers. Mm -hmm. So what I see in organizational greatness is a commitment to all five of those drivers. That makes sense, Mike? It makes huge sense. And I think it's I mean, it's very relevant for the pharmaceutical industry, right, which tends to have that linear approach, right? And yes. I want to say, I want to say, say this out loud because I'm still trying to figure out how to write it down. But this idea of, I think they've embraced multiculturalism in the sense that the, the divisions have different cultures, right? So you have a culture of R and D, you have a culture yeah. of of manufacturing, of of sales and marketing, and I don't think those cultures necessarily intersect within one corporate culture. Mm. So I'm going to come back to each of those pieces in time, but I want to go all the way back to the talent recognition because you know, David Epstein's book Range talks about this. Right? Do, do you find that companies or people or teams recognize their talent early enough, or is it something that emerges from you know, the, the, the kind of discipline of focus? Well, funny you, you mentioned David's book. I've talked about his book five or six times the last few days. I don't know why yeah, it, yeah. it come out. I, I was I was with my granddaughter at, in, in Richmond at a park and I got into a conversation with an attorney and a real estate developer who were walking their children and I mentioned David's book. And then my wife and I are driving back, listening to a podcast and, and David's book came up again. And she goes, what is that book? And I explained it to her. Mm-hmm. And I, I jokingly say, and I agree with David, by the way, I think the shortest distance between two points in life is a zigzag. Mm-hmm. And I think that people who I even had a conversation this morning about a dad who is trying to not be a helicopter father, but his son is 14 years old, a great golfer, and also plays basketball. Mm-hmm. And the dad thinks the kid's future is, is golf. And he's trying to not be a helicopter dad, but make sure the kid plays enough golf. I, I, I said, yeah. relax, stop, yeah. stop putting pressure on the child. Yeah. So I, I, what I've noticed is the elite organizations, Mike, that I have have seen over the years, while you do have to have very specific, I think, laser focus on certain kinds of talent and certain jobs, mm-hmm. for the most part, across the band of organizational performance, you need breadth and depth. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a, I'm, I, I believe deeply in what I would call the deep generalist approach. And I think the best organizations hire for attitude and then train for skill. Yep. Yep. And yep. and we we make a distinction, and I, I hope this kind of comes across, but but we talk about job skills and behavior skills, two skill yep. sets. Yep. Job skills and behavior skills. And you know, job skills are task specific, they're technical, they're they're you know relevant to a particular thing you have to do inside that organization. And there's a portfolio of competencies technically oriented that you have to have, even from an EA on, you're right, you got to have certain things. Yeah. However, there's a second skill set that I think's been horribly neglected globally in organizations, and we call them behavior skills. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes that's called soft skills, which is a horrible term. Mm-hmm. But when I say behavior skills, I mean things like self-awareness, resilience, emotional management, thinking, decision-making, problem-solving, innovation, listening. 
yeah. collaboration, teamwork. Those yeah. are behavior skills. So there's a statement I've been making for over 30 years, and it's this. Job skills rise no higher than behavior skills. Mm-hmm. And then and I'll ask a question to people. I'll say, what do you hire for in your organization? Mm-hmm. Job skills or behavior skills? They go, oh, we hire for job skills. Awesome. What do you fire for? Uh, yeah. and, and it gets real quiet in the room. Yeah. And then I'll say, I want to be a second question. What do you train the most in? Mm-hmm. Technical skills, job skills. What causes yeah. all the problems? Yeah. So I was doing a, a workshop for a global firm here pre, it was in New York, people flew in. It's a, it's a small internal unit for a, a large global company. And this is pre-COVID and, and we're sitting around talking about this. And then I made this statement. Now, again, no technical competence can overcome a behavior skill gap. Mm-hmm. And they all were kind of like, oh yeah, that's interesting. And then I asked this question, have you ever worked with somebody who was really smart and a pain in the butt to work with? And everyone looked at the same guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. We all laughed, and but it was uncomfortable laughter. And so, and he laughed. So at the break, I went up to him and I said, "Hey, uh, that was kind of a funny moment." He goes, "Yeah, I'm that. I'm that guy, and I'm kind of irascible. I'm, I'm I'm abrasive, but you know, I'm really smart at this, this, and this, and that's the role that I play." And I said, "Do people like to work with you?" He goes, "Probably not." And and my I saw a I saw a thing in his eyes and I I said I took a shot at him and I said can I ask you a personal question he goes yeah I said are you that guy at home also mm-hmm. and he said to me which home I'm on my third one wow. and, yeah. and and tears start coming down his face wow. so I I think we have got to I think expand our view of talent yeah and understand that talent and skill are not just about technical competencies. But we have to develop and create a culture and and start training people in what we call behavior skills. And it is a trainable set of competencies. And no one is born with all the technical competence or behavioral competence that they need. And so you get great people two ways, Mike. You hire them or you develop them. Those are the only two ways you get great people. No, no other way. And 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 if you think it's not you, but if 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 an organization thinks it's just a matter of hiring. That's a mistake. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that that Alan's recent book, Talent, it, it talks about exactly that, right? The, the hiring for attitude, and that thing of you know people welcoming the sociopaths, the psychopaths, the you know the, the, the people with personality disorders into their teams at, at their peril for, for for some of that reason. Mm-hmm. Do you think that applies to so, so kind of hierarchical systems in companies where you know let's say. You know, it's it, the development team is regarded as the smartest people in the room, or you know, did, 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 is, is it easy to level set a team or, or or an organization that thinks that there are those hierarchies? I don't think it's easy to do that. What happens is something that's called the intelligence trap, mm-hmm. and then culturally, socially, when people are given a pass to say you don't have to behave in alignment with our cultural norms because you're so smart or you're in this department. That that causes friction, yeah. that causes broken relationships, that causes a lack of communication, that shuts down. Let, let me give an analogy. This is interesting. So I like to ask companies, how many of you have an IT system, an IT network? Now, oh, of course we do. You're robust and it's big. You got central servers and 
you got operating systems and operating software and functional software and used to be, you know, hardwired connections. Now it's office and wireless and things are in the cloud. And so what happens if your IT system goes down or if a connection, oh, we'd be hosed, we're in trouble. And, and what's the one thing you don't want to get in your IT system? They go, oh, virus. I said, exactly. And you have system administrators who do nothing but what? Pay attention to the system, the software, the connections, the nodes, you know, the central service. Awesome. Okay. What's more important, your IT system or your human system? Mm-hmm. And the human system has what? Connections, mm-hmm. central nodes, mm-hmm. right? Servers, software, hardware, connections, et cetera. Yeah. What, hap- what happens if a connection goes down to the human system? Yeah. Information yeah. stops. And then I say, what's the one thing you don't want to get into your human system? Of course, the answer is what? A a virus, <laughs> you know, somebody yeah. with a bad attitude, somebody who is arrogant, somebody who doesn't listen, somebody who believes they're above the cultural norms. The, so I, I, I've always hearkened to or, or become highly aware of this analogy, this, you know, analog of IT system yeah. and yeah. human system. One other thought on that, by the way, I like to ask, who are the system administrators for your human system? Hmm. Hmm. When you notice that there's a problem, you know, somewhere inside the human connections, the social system, if you will, who recognizes and fixes that. Yeah. And, and Mike, the vast majority of, of, of leadership teams that I talk to, they have no idea. Yeah. And I ask that question and they're just, there's a blank look on their face, yeah. which then turns to fear. Yeah. Because they recognize, oh my yeah. gosh, they we're vulnerable, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it's, it's really interesting. You've written before about, you know, how most CEOs tend to focus on skills and you talk about leading you know, leading with your heart, you know, can you talk, tell me what you mean by that, by leading with your heart in business? Well, I think, I think culture building has, and I'll just put it in the cultural realm, but also we can talk operational efficiency or strategic execution or innovate anything because everything is led. I mean, it is, I'm a deep believer that leaders create the culture that drives the behavior that produces results. Hmm. We call that the performance pathway. Leaders create culture. Culture drives behavior, and then behavior produces results. Mm-hmm. So everything that happens in a business, whether it's strategy on the market or ops inside, anything, change, anything, depends on effective leaders, strong culture, and behavioral discipline. That's just, that's physics. Yeah. And so what, what I've noticed about culture and I've noticed about leadership is it's paper head heart. It's a three-step journey. You put it on paper to clarify it, culture. And then you communicate it in order for people to think about it cognitively, discuss it, debate it. What's it mean? What do you mean by that word, that phrase, those standards? And then the third step from head to heart is when it becomes truly culture. Mm-hmm. And the going from head to heart is really difficult. It's not hard to put culture on paper or on a poster. Not hard at all. Mm-hmm. It's really not that hard to have a few, you know, town hall meetings and some some you know conversations and some emails uh, about it. The real challenge is how do you coach it? How do you get it from head to heart? And just a little word thing here. I like to ask this, the word core values or the phrase core values. And of course, values are those standards that we want people to operate by. Mm-hmm. So what's the word core mean? You know, it's a descriptor. It's describing, you know, something about values. And most people, particularly in North America, they don't know. If I ask this to a European audience, a higher percentage of people will say, well, wait a second, Corazon, 
core, heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Core means heart. So a core value is not supposed to reside on a wall or a poster. It's supposed to reside on a human heart. Yeah. And so if I might, leaders then, this is important. Leaders, if it's not on the heart of the leader, how can the leader lead the culture? Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. So one of the challenges, I think, when people do write their culture down is it's bland, right? You know, they write the bland stuff down, the obvious stuff, the things that yeah. no one would do the opposite of. And do, do you see a difference between people that, you know, that embody a culture or where it's more organic or, you know, someone's decided to change their culture? Have, you know, have you seen those words be written down and become like, you know, do, to go through that whole pathway? So we have the distinct privilege of helping organizations rethink, rebuild, reinvigorate their culture. And we've got a methodology that we use. But among the things that we say is when you write it down, it's got to be clear, concise, and compelling. Don't make it boring. Mm. Don't. Mm. And then it also has to be behaviorally specific. Mm. That one of the mistakes I think organizations make is they they describe core values or key principles or guiding whatever core but it's 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 these statements like integrity and teamwork and customer focus uh-huh of course yes okay, mm -hmm. but what do you want me to do yeah yeah give it to me behaviorally so we help our clients create a a behavioral blueprint for their culture and again it can't be long you can't give i've seen these culture statements where these long lists no you can't do that yeah. I, people don't remember that so give me specific behavioral standards and it has to all be in a verb. It has to be an action. What do you want me to do? If we believe in integrity, what do you want me to do? What does that look like? And, and that's, I think, the key to communicating it, writing it down, clarifying it, and communicating it. And then the, the heart thing is so interesting because the leader, going back to that notion, the leader can't put it on somebody else's heart. Mm -hmm. What the leader can do is show what it looks like because it's on her heart. Or, or, or their heart. And I deeply believe if from a leadership perspective, if it's not happening in you, it's never going to happen through you. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And if you were to kind of contrast teams, so sports teams, companies, you know, you, you talk about elites, do teams, companies decide to become elite and then step through that process? Or, you know, do they find themselves being elite and then they're, then they're coaching themselves? Is there, you know, can a good team become a great team by by design? Is it? A I, I think it's all by design. Like, I, I mean, if, if someone becomes elite accidentally, they got, they, they were blessed with a gene. <laughs> they're blessed with drive, some passion. You know, if it's a team sport, we all know there's a wide distribution of behavioral tendencies and so forth. And, and, you know, and on a team of people in athletics, not every athlete on the team is going to have this drive to become best version of themselves. Yeah. And so that's what leadership's about. And the, the other thing that I, I would say, and I'll make a quick contrast between an athletic team and a business. Athletic teams spend almost all their time practicing, not performing and competing. Mm -hmm. They they actually it's a you know dependent upon the sport ten to one twenty to one thirty to one ratio like yeah. practice 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 oh now we can play the game right now we have I work with some NHL folks and National Hockey League <laughs> they play a lot of games <laughs> so they don't train as much but but in business when's game day in a business yeah. every day yeah. when when do you get to practice. 
So, so in business, you'd better figure out as you're competing every day, you better learn how to learn why you're competing. Yeah. And, and then, and then the thing about elite in my mind, and we, we talk about this, this phenomenon called the edge. Mm-hmm. And we actually draw a pretty simple diagram when we draw, you know, a box that says your current state. And then we draw another box that says what's possible. And then there's a line from where you are to what's possible. And this is true individually and organizationally. And that line is you getting better, you doing work, you learning, you developing. And then there's a vertical line partway down that that horizontal line on your journey. And that vertical line is where learning something gets really hard, mm-hmm. where you don't have talent for it. Yeah. You weren't born with that aptitude, but it's yeah. a skill that you need. So here's a statement I wish every business in the world would adopt. And that's this. You don't have talent for every skill you need. Mm-hmm. And this notion that we can go out and hire somebody who, j- just for their strengths and they don't have to work hard to build skills they don't have talent for, that's lethal yeah. in my mind to organizational greatness. So my question for adults in business, what do you do when you've maximized the skills that come naturally to you? What do you do to build the skills that don't come naturally to you, but you need them anyway? That's the edge. Yeah. What, what do you do? And, and what's an organization do to build yeah. a culture yeah. that motivates and inspires and equips and engages people to learn those competencies? That's yeah. when elite happens. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I'm going to refer back to that Tyler Cowan book. He talks about, you know, a great interview question being, what do you do that is deliberate practice for your role? You know, you know, actually, it'd be a hard question for a lot of people in an interview, right? Well, yeah. I do. I've done this job for 20 years. And you know, and what did you do that wasn't the job? You know, it would be a really hard question for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. And that whole intentional practice, deliberate practice, Anders Ericsson, Dan Coyle, and there's a number of people who have researched it, written about it. And it tends to be pretty much drawn from athletics and the arts, but it really has great relevance in, in the business setting. and. You know, if you only practice in the comfort zone, if you only practice things that you are naturally talented for, you you can't become best version of yourself. It's impossible. Yeah. So if you're a you're a pharmaceutical company, right? There, you've got a lot of teams who might have different cultures, but the your it isn't about scoring more goals. You know, next season it isn't about hiring someone to shore up the defense. Some of what you're going to do is find out what five years time needs or 10 years time needs so some this is about the future and planning for a future that no one knows do you i'm I'm just interested in whether there's a difference between the the kind of known known of of of, of winning a a game next week or next year versus the unknown that that, that, that the company might be headed towards well i i think having worked as long as i have in athletics and in business i would say that it's a lot more difficult to build that mindset and skill set in a business setting than it is in athletics. And I think you touched on it. I mean, the the drills, the skills, the outcomes are a lot clearer mm. in an athletic setting than they're going to be in a business setting, particularly if, well, I'll, I'll give you a contrast here. So one of my clients here in the US is in its automotive retailing. Mm. And the owner of the very, very large high net big network of of retail or of automobile dealerships he's in contact with the owners or the the, the leaders of the manufacturers mm-hmm. you know the hondas the fords the general motors etc and those manufacturers have told him and other owners of these big networks of retailers 
here's where we're going. Here's how we want our cars retailed. And if you don't build your retail organization, your dealerships to meet our standards, you can't sell and service our cars. Mm -hmm. Well, all of a sudden, the, the question about what changes they need to make, those questions have been eliminated. They now know what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. And I and I I told him recently. I told all the managers in this company. I said, "You are so fortunate. Most businesses are guessing about the future. Yeah. Where do we place the bets? Yeah. Now, where do we think the value chain is going? You know, what's happening in manufacturing? What's happening in distribution? What's happening to you know the supplier network that you have? You know, which channel do you bet on? Mm -hmm. Well, I told and I said, "You're so fortunate that you don't have to make you don't have to guess." Mm -hmm. Now, nonetheless, though, and this is interesting. Because when you talk about innovation and when you talk about we don't know necessarily what the world's going to look like 10, 15 years and now in, in our particular industry, even if you did, here's what's interesting. People don't like change. Yeah. 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 And I, here's a big statement that I'm, I'm making. I mean, almost every day with every client that I'm, I'm working with. Change in an organization, Mike, this is really interesting, happens at the pace of people, not the pace of the plan. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, let's go back to behavior skill. If you don't equip people for the emotional side of change personally, mm -hmm. you will make that change longer and way more expensive than you need to. You know, you talk about asymmetric learning. I can call asymmetric change. Change is learning, right? Mm -hmm. Change is about what new things do I need to adopt? What old things do I need to let go of? What new things do I need to develop? Well, that's emotionally challenging for a whole mm -hmm. lot of people. And very few companies today are addressing the emotional side of that. Mm. They're making a logical appeal to what's an emotional thing. And as yeah. a consequence, change is happening slow. I, Lina, ask 100 people who likes change. Only five raise their hand and three of them are lying. <laughs> Do you see that? Because I mean, it's, it's also more true that the people that like change the least are the most senior people in organizations often, right? They're the, they're the ones. Boom. Yeah. Boom. And then they tend to hire consulting firms that have this very mechanical engineering, like check the box, check the box, check the box, change plan. Mm. Sorry, mm. that yeah. doesn't work very well. Yeah, no, I, I remember turning down a consulting project once, you know, you know, large management consultancy that everyone knows that I don't like being there had failed. And they were doing this ridiculous thing of like, you know, trend assessment, they were doing extrapolation of trends, I mean, both of which are impossible to do. And then they were essentially forecasting five, 10 years out. And that, the idea was that you would then shape the company around that. So, well, no one knows how to do any of those things. And it's going to seem logical, but it's going to make no sense to anybody who decided this was a good idea. And so, well, well, the logic of it seems clear, right? You know, trends, great, you know, extrapolate, all of those things are logical things to do. But yes, but there must be this sort of suspension of disbelief amongst the leadership about, I said, even were you to see the future in 10 years time, it doesn't tell you what to do with your organization, just yeah. tells you what the world looks like. It doesn't tell yeah. you how you're going to get yeah. there. How do, I, how do I fit in? So I love this. So there's something called a focus frame. So if you if you draw a circle, which can be a situation that you face or a market that you're in, or but the circle represents all the stuff, realities, et cetera, constraints inside you know, a situation or even even a you know a market or, or, or an industry. But then inside that circle is a box. And that box is your focus frame. Yeah. That's how you see that situation. And it's it's how you see it. It's how you think about it. It's how it's what you it's how you talk about it. It's how you feel about it. And yeah. all your decisions 
will be made inside that focus frame. Well, here's the problem. Our focus frames are limited, but they feel complete. Mm-hmm. And we become emotionally attached to them. And so what I tell people, whether it's a small company or a big company, or it's a division within the firm, or it's the C-suite, there's really important information outside your focus frame. you got to go get it. And so I say, I want I want you to ask five questions of yourself and your team. Five questions. Number one, how do you currently see the situation? Number two, what do you not see that you need to see? Question number three, what do you see but you're discounting? Mm-hmm. Question four, what are you pretending not to see? And number five, how do other people see it in a way that you don't? What do other people see that you don't? And slow down and ask those five questions. If you don't, you are limiting yourself and you'll never be able to truly expand your frame in order to find a better way forward as the future unfolds. Yeah. And what do people do when uh, people do that willingly or do they do that? Do they have to break (laughs) themselves to make themselves? Uh, What a great question. I, uh, I like to ask once again the five questions. Why would you not ask those five questions? Yeah. yeah. And here's what I hear, and, and not necessarily in order. One, I'm busy, don't have time to slow down and ask them. I said, Ooh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, if you don't slow down and ask them, you won't be busy forever. So, right. <laughs> yeah. so what are, what are you busy doing? Because maybe you're maybe you're cutting down trees. Are you in the right forest? You know, mm-hmm. you could. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, I hear from people is. I think I wouldn't ask those questions because I'm not sure I'd like the answer. Yeah. Yeah. And then a third reason is we're lazy. And then another reason is we're arrogant. We think we already know the answer and we just don't think we need to know. So yeah, yeah. none of those, none of those excuses yeah. are going to help an organization or a team or a person be it's successful. Kind of, it's kind of interesting. I remember Michael Schrag's book serious play where he talks about this magic mirror uh, and, and in the magic mirror he says you can see yourself 20 pounds lighter you can see yourself you know fitter more muscular you can you see what it looked like if you dyed your hair and he said the question is how would you use the mirror what would you do with it you know and, and then the next question is who would you share it with would you share it with your wife would you share it with your <laughs> maybe your wife says oh yeah i would like you 20 pounds lighter and uh, and uh, so that that is deeply analogous to what you just said. It's it's hard to imagine those alternative visions of yourself being necessarily something that you're comfortable with. Well, and, and then and, and we're all very aware of cognitive biases, right? A lot's been written about it. And you know, Daniel Kahneman wrote, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is really good stuff. And and we all know that the human mind isn't as objective as we think it is. And that's why I have found those five questions that have tremendous utility. So, you know, do I have confirmation bias? We all do. So, so, you know, am I, am I looking, am I looking through a belief lens or am I looking for evidence, right? Am I looking for evidence to confirm what I believe or am I considering disconfirming evidence that's emotionally uncomfortable, but deep inside I go, gosh, there's, that has some relevance there. You know, that, that's something I need to give some deep consideration to. It, It is a, it is a very, very important discipline. Mm. to know how to understand your current frames mm. and to be able to reframe and get outside your your current frame. I, it may be one of life's most important competencies. Yeah. Uh, and I want to come back to discipline as, a, you know, as, as, as you define it, because, you know, one of the things that I'd be interested in your views on is you often hear of athletes, sports people, 
you know, unlearning their, 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 their sport in order to relearn it. You know, is, is that something that you see often? Is that something that you think is a good thing? Is it something that you think the company should spend more time doing? I'm not a big fan of unlearning. I'm a big fan of replacement. Mm-hmm. The research that I see says that in order to improve the way you see or do anything, isn't so much to quote unquote, and I maybe it's just semantics, but it's understand what great looks like in that particular competency. And if you don't currently execute that way or behave that way or perform that way, find out, get yourself into a deliberate practice process and start practicing the right way and replace your old habits with the new ones. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to unlearn, in fact, that's that's not debatable. The best way to get rid of an old habit is to replace it with a good one. That yeah. means if you just kind of stop, like, don't do that anymore. People have a real hard time doing that. Yeah. But if yeah. you say, hey, don't do A, A's not, A's not competitive or A's not healthy or A's not. Pre- so what should I? Well, do B. Okay. What's B yeah. look like? Well, it's this, 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 and this. And then the other thing about that is you have to have a coach. Mm-hmm. Personally, professionally, athletically, business, you have to have somebody. I call it a noticer and a truth teller, a noticer and a truth teller who you have equipped and authorized to say, observe how I do and let me know where my gaps are because self-awareness is very difficult mm-hmm. and, and there's limits to how much we can see ourselves. So if I know that great looks like this, but this is where I perform, mm-hmm. I need somebody to help me understand the gap. Mm-hmm. And that that's that that's critically important. Yeah. And, and I guess that whole process of replacement is, you know, by definition, uncomfortable for someone that's, that's got where they are from not doing that. So it's a, it's a discipline in itself. Well, we, we call it embracing productive discomfort. Mm-hmm. I like that. I want to come back. There's a phrase that you use about the 20 square feet principle. Yes. There you go. You've done your homework. <laughs> Tell, tell, or, tell or, your, or your or your producer did and gave you the yeah, notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, twenty square feet is a metaphor that I developed many years ago that represents every single person's sphere of ownership and control inside an organization or a team. It's mm-hmm. a metaphor. It's not a literal space. You know, I do it in Europe. It's not even square feet. It's metric, but it it just represents your, your sphere of control. And the thing that's interesting about it is everyone has a 20 square feet. Everybody has a sphere of control. And and the fact is that you, inside your 20 square feet, you've got control. Outside, you have impact. Mm -hmm. And when you drive your automobile, you do not control someone else's automobile. You control your own. Now, and then what you do in your 20 square feet affects people around you. And what happens is, and there's a, there's a sociological term for it called diffusion of responsibility. When organizations get larger, people begin to feel like their 20 square feet doesn't really matter. Okay. And they begin to, to, to their, their sense of ownership and responsibility inside their 20 square feet goes down. Well, that's a mistake yeah. because you, you do control inside your 20 square feet. And again, it's not just at work. You control your 20 square feet at work, you control your 20 square feet as you travel from home, from work to wherever you live. You control your 20 square feet in the evening with your family or your roommates or your friends. You 20 square feet at the airport or at the train station when you travel, it's your sphere of ownership. 
And I tell people all the time, do not abdicate what you do control because you're frustrated about what you don't control. Mm -hmm. I mean, just don't do that to yourself. And I, my, my phrase for it is don't let the fire on the inside be diminished by the frustration on the outside. There's okay. always going to be things outside your 20 square feet that you don't control. Yeah. That's life. Yeah. Accept that fact. And then, and if you maximize your effectiveness within your 20 square feet, you'll have more influence on those things that are really important to you. Yeah. So when it comes to organizational performance, one of the great keys in leadership, engage, equip, and energize people to own their 20 square feet. It's critical to business greatness. Yeah. So I've got two questions on that. Because one is, do you find that people retreat to, I'm going to say, a bit like driving a car, right? You know, the road rage happens because people feel comfortable in their 20 square feet and and, it, and, it, and it's very comfortable. They don't want any intrusion to it. So do they become protective of, you know, the way it used to be? Are they deeply conservative? Interesting question. Very insightful, by the way. Here's what the research shows in North America. I got to guess it's the same in Europe. People don't just get protective in their 20 square feet. They get combative when they mm -hmm. drive their car. Yeah. Like if you tailgate me, if you cut me off, I don't just get protective. If it was protective, I just move over and you let you go and I protect the safety. It's not protective. It's combative. Mm -hmm. I'm angry. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Don't go. You, you know, you do that to me. I'm going to do it back to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see. And, and again, I don't know the stats in Europe. I know the stats in the U.S. 40,000 people are killed on average annually in the United States due to bad driving. That's mm -hmm. fatalities. That, that's, that's not, that's not injuries and property damage. That's, that's just fatalities. Right. And and when why? Usually, like you said, because someone got mad, they'd lost their they stopped controlling their 20 square feet of driving. Yeah, yeah. Now, not every not every you know accident is because of that. A lot of it's drunken driving, stuff like that. But yeah. yeah, I think I think people have a tendency to, you know, get get at least as, as driving is concerned. Now there's some, you know, in a business, it's like, yeah, why should I put forth extra effort? Yeah, yeah. Why, why should I, why should I, you know stress myself? Why should I become uncomfortable? Why should I try to build new skill? I'm okay with my 20 square feet. Well, you know what? Well, how about quiet quitting that's happening here that you hear all the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what is that? That's someone who's lost the fire in their 20 square feet. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I also think that's a failure to lead well, yeah. because if you're my boss, Mike, and you are, you engage with me and you equip me with the right mindset and we've got, you've built trust with me, and you challenge me, I mean, and, and, and we've got these standards that I see you live, not perfectly, but substantially, and there's passion and energy on our team, dude, you're going to get my full 20 square feet. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess the risk is the, uh, those people just driving on autopilot, right? That, you know, you know, they'd rather be listening, you know, looking in the mirror or doing something else. But one thing that I think that's the second question, I guess, is about the, so because of the way teams work, there's a sort of necessary vulnerability about the, you know the the interaction with people that know something you don't or that can you know do do something with a ball that you can't do or you know those things how does the t kind of 20 square feet you know idea fit with that idea of inviting people in to to to, to you know to, to to suggest suggest improvements to how you do what you do or to or to interact with you in a, in a, in, a, in a particular way well, there's no question in business and in, in athletics, alignment is critical. You have to align everyone's 20 square feet around the culture and the plan. Mm. You have to. Mm. And it's alignment's hard to come by. 
And because we we are all we tend to be ego driven, mm-hmm. and we tend to kind of believe that our perception is correct. Like I said earlier on focus frames. So I'm a big believer in that. There's big ego and there's strong ego, mm-hmm. and the big ego is self centered mm-hmm. and arrogant. And does not like to admit mistakes. It finds fault in others, but doesn't admit it in self. It's it's quick to speak and slow to listen and slow to learn. And it's toxic. A strong ego is team-oriented. Hmm. A strong ego is confident, but humble. And a, a strong ego wants to align, wants feedback, wants to contribute. A strong ego is very interested in the team's success and wants to know how he or she can help and can contribute to it. A strong ego knows how to follow and how to lead. Hmm. Big ego ego doesn't like to follow and only wants to lead. A strong ego says, hey, how is what I'm doing helping the team? How's what I'm doing not helping the team? Give me feedback because I want to align and contribute because our success is most important. So there's a big difference between big ego and strong ego. Ego just means my sense of self. Mm -hmm. And so ego itself, it's not good or bad. It's it's bad if it's big. It's great if it's strong. Is that is that a good picture? Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that idea. I hadn't ever heard anyone express it that way, but it makes so much sense when you when you do. I'm aware I could spend all day long talking to you about this stuff, but one of the things I want to just just pull out is I think a lot of people hear a lot of things about culture and discipline and, and so forth. You know, there's the gurus and there's all sorts of other people. I'd, I'd love to hear from you a case study. I mean, you know, maybe American Electric Power as a, as a, as a case study in people changing, right? you know, doing the things that you said and then something good yeah. happening, happening as a result. Well, one of the things I think it's important to understand, and, and if you've seen our stuff, we talk about discipline over default. Mm-hmm. There's discipline behavior and there's default behavior. And discipline, interestingly enough, is a Latin word that means learning. It doesn't mean punishment. It, it, it's discipulus is Latin for student. And so discipline behavior is learned. It's not natural. We're not born with it. It's learned. And, and, and if I were to give a quick definition, I think discipline is, is, is aligning your life with timeless principles. And making yourself a little bit better every day because you align yourself with timeless truths that mm-hmm. are effective in the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas default is simply going with what's most comfortable, whether it's effective or not. Mm-hmm. And typically what default's driven by is impulse, autopilot, and resistance. And discipline is driven by intention, purpose, and skill. And so when, when, when an organization makes a decision to say, we want to be discipline driven, okay. Let's then learn how to do that. Now, the system that we use and AEP, American Electric Power, adopted this system in multiple business units is E plus R equals O. And that's a simple equation that means event plus response equals outcome. Mm-hmm. ERO. You do not control events. You do control how you choose to respond. And your response produces the outcome. Right. And the, the simple truth is. There will always be events in your life and at work that you do not control that you have to deal with. And so what you don't want to do is you don't want to complain about them. You want to solve them. You want to deal with them effectively with discipline, not default. Mm -hmm. A discipline response 
produces a very different outcome than a default response. Hmm. And then the, the core principle is the outcomes that you get are determined by the responses that you choose. If you want a better O, choose a better R. So AEP installed discipline over default and ERO in both generation and distribution. It's a, it's a utility company. Mm-hmm. So they, they generate energy and then they build and, and repair power lines and distribute it to consumers. And safety is a huge issue at AEP as it is in any manufacturing or heavy industry or utility. You make a mistake when you're ha- handling, handling a high energy power line and someone's going to die. Mm-hmm. So they adopted E plus R equals O and discipline over default and saw a significant improvement in safety and lots of other things, productivity, teaming, et cetera. And the other cool thing, that, and I, I think this is very relevant, and I love this, by the way, when someone learns E plus R equals O, they get trained in that at work, they take it home to their families. Because mm-hmm. it works at home, too. Of course. Yeah. On that equation, because it's, you know, it's such an appealing equation. I mean, you said you can't control events, but you can anticipate them. I don't think people spend enough time on anticipation and simulation and and so forth and, and, you know, learning their way through what their response might be. Did you, have you read about our work on, on uh, predictable events? No, no. So very intuitive on your part. So when we teach our factor, one of the things we teach people is most of the events in your life are predictable and you should anticipate them and be prepared. Mm -hmm. Not, not all the events. Go yeah. back to driving your car. You know what's going to happen when you drive. Yeah. Not, not every single day, but over the course of a month, you, you can say, here's 10 events I'm going to get when I drive. Yeah. Traveling through the airport, you know, right? Traveling on the train, you know. So when those events happen, you shouldn't be surprised. Here's mm-hmm. an interesting discipline for a company. Every job in a company has an R-factor profile. You can map the events that job's going to get. Mm-hmm. And you can map the responses that work best to those events and what responses produce the best outcomes. Yeah. And then you can, and then you can interview for that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you a story of, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast with, 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 with someone else, but of running a pre-mortem with a team that was headed into a, a significant clinical study. And the default is to not confront the risks right you know they there you go yeah. they've done it they planned and they're they, so we made them do a pre-mortem which was a deeply uncomfortable exercise for most of the people in that room they started slowly and then they started writing suddenly the wall was full of stickies all of which were predictable things that could happen that would all derail this study and they all sat around looking as depressed as i've ever seen anyone looking but at that point then you could have gone in and done some you know response management and, and, yeah. and applied a disciplined approach to it Actually, the interesting thing is that the report from that session, which was full of ways of mitigating the risk of this study, the study then did go on and fail in three years' time. And actually, a lot of the reasons it did was there were known reasons. But this this team, when we asked them, well, why have you never done this before? They said, well, no one's asked us to. There's been this kind of this belief that we just carry on going forwards and everything will be fine. And I just wondered about that, how they felt. There must be an anxiety if you know this stuff and no one's ever asked you, right? You're just proceeding, yeah. hopefully, instead of instead of managing it. We, that- we do, yeah, yeah. We do, we do a lot of work around anticipating predictable events. Like I said, we actually workshop that, like you were talking about, and mm-hmm. and 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 it's 
And then I tell people this, if you don't do that kind of predictive anticipatory, you know what it is to it's strategic thinking. It really is. Because when you, this is interesting about human behavior. When you give someone the opportunity to engage in mediocre behavior that's comfortable or exceptional behavior that's effective, but uncomfortable, what will they choose? Mm -hmm. Most people choose the mediocre behavior that's comfortable. Is it producing the outcomes that you want? No, not really. Why don't you change it? Because it's uncomfortable. So we, we, we actually have people write down in their roles predictable events they get, write them down. And we have a worksheet that we use based on E plus R equals O. So when this E happens, tell me, how do you currently respond? And what outcome does your current response produce? What would a more disciplined response look like and what outcome would it produce? And people see that and they'll say, okay, this E has been happening for the last five years. I've responded on default. I'm not getting the outcome that I want. And I've written it down and I see it in front of me. Huh, gosh, why do I do that? Well, let's not do that. Back to replacement, right? So yeah. let's not do that anymore. Let's yeah. shift the way you respond. Yeah. Very effective. Yeah. And uh, and uh, last question before I uh, I ask you to tell us how people can find you is really you know within the team if you're the only one that wants to step up and confront that default mode, how do you manage that you know unilateral versus multilateral you know stepping up and becoming elite? Well, you better encourage number one. You better have a strong ego, not a big one. If you come across as a strong or as a big ego, like I'm going to tell you what to do, that won't work. Mm-hmm. So got to have humility. You have to deeply care about the team and the people on the team. And they have to know you. You've heard this statement. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And mm-hmm. and I think there's a lack of love today in business. And when I say love, I don't mean squishy, you know, mushy. I'm my definition of love is you act in someone else's best interest in a wise and effective fashion. Mm-hmm. You subordinate your ego your to, to what's needed. And so I'm big, I'm a big believer in and do whatever you can to make sure people understand you deeply care about them, you care about the team, you care about the success of your business unit or of the organization. And if you if you share from that, if you challenge from that foundation, you maximize the potential of success, but there's no guarantee. And so I, I had a, I had an executive the day ask me, you know, I'm, I'm in this situation and, and I don't, don't like what's going on. And, and I, I, you know, I'm starting to challenge a little bit and, and not sure people are listening to me and, and what do I do? And I said, well, make sure that you're trusted, make sure that people know you care and that you love them and you love the company and the business. But I said, here are your choices. Stay and complain. Stay and work to make a difference. Or, you know, stay and just keep your mouth shut or go leave, go someplace else. Mm -hmm. Here's what you can't do. Mm -hmm. Don't stay and complain. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. So if if, if you can stay and, you know, just kind of suffer, endure it, which he's not wired that way. So he ain't doing that. That's off the table. And he's not going to want to complain. So that's off the table. So now he's got a decision. Am I going to stay and 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 embrace productive discomfort and try to manage up and try to get people to recognize things that we need to do mm-hmm. and and be courageous and skillful, or do I leave and go someplace else? Mm-hmm. Say, well, oh, that, that's, that's that's where you're at. Yeah, yeah. So, Tim, this has been joyful as much as uh, as much as insightful. People are going to want to find you. What's the what, what's what's the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, my our, our website is focus3.com. And it's the number three, the, the numeral three, focus3.com. And a lot of cool stuff there. And we're always innovating and putting new stuff on the website. I'm also on LinkedIn. And it's Tim Kite, K-I-G-H-T. Twitter as well, at Timothy Kite, K-I-G-H-T. And my, my email address, if someone wants to email me directly, very simple, Tim at focus3.com. And I'd love to hear from folks. That'd be great. Amazing. Anything you wish I'd asked you before I let you go? Not, we, you know, I, I have really appreciated your insightful questions. I think you've asked a lot of wonderful, wonderful questions. I, like you, um, I think you and I could talk for hours, my friend. And uh, so there's a yeah. lot of topics we could continue to talk about, but I, I think we've maxed this one out today. So that's been yeah, good. I, I think we should try and book some time in Hilton Head to, to, to sit with a beer and some food. I'm here and maybe a cigar as well. Okay. Yeah. And I'll yeah. take it and I'll take you fishing. I, I appreciate I have to learn. I, I've never done it. So I, I'd appreciate that. All right. Tim, this has been a, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Have a good day. That's it for this week's episode of Idea Collider. To continue the conversation, visit our website at ideapharma.com. Follow us in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm Mike Rea, wishing you great success. 